welcome to Fiber Hooligan. For the next hour or so, I'd like to invite you to grab your cup of coffee, tea, or caffeine-free A&W diet root beer, if that's your beverage of choice, and settle in for the ninth episode of The Return of Fiber Hooligan. For those of you who are wondering who the heck I am, I am your host, Benjamin Levesey. I am also the CEO of XRX Inc., home of XRX Books and Stitches Expos. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm broadcasting live from my home here in Harrisburg, South Dakota. If you are tuning in for the first time, Fiber Hooligan is a podcast dedicated to bringing you interviews with the best of the fiber arts and makers world, including experts in business, people, designers in the crafts of knitting, crochet, spinning, dyeing, weaving, sewing, quilting, embroidery, as well as anything else I think is interesting. I want to welcome the new listeners today. Thank you for tuning in and trying out the show. I hope you enjoy it. I can't wait for us to get to know each other better. And, of course, I'd like to welcome back our Fiber Hooligan listeners who used to tune into the original show so many years ago. Your ongoing support means so very much to me. Okay, my guest today is a real treat. Uh, my guest today is Karita Collins from Neighborhood Fiber Company. Karita's pronouns are she and her. If you've been to a Stitches West in the past couple of years, you might have met her and seen her wonderful yarn firsthand. If you've been in downtown Baltimore, you might have done the same thing. Karita learned how to knit immediately after finishing college and fell in love. Hard. Enamored with knitting, she set out to create her own hand-dyed yarn business in 2006. She taught herself how to dye yarn, and thus Neighborhood Fiber Company was born. Karita's love of saturated and vibrant colors is what gives her yarn its signature style. Stirred by her surroundings, Karita set out to provide the world with hand-dyed yarns inspired and named to reflect the natural beauty and diverse neighborhoods throughout the nation's capital. Since then, she has added many more colors to reflect a multitude of neighborhoods, both inside and outside of D.C. Now based in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Neighborhood Fiber Company continues to offer vibrant, one-of-a-kind color, colors inspired by urban landscapes. Karita is not only a very creative person, she's also very much a leader in our industry, an activist and an important voice for the black community. I'm so pleased that she could find time to join us in the show. Karita joins us today from her studio in Baltimore, Maryland. Good morning, Karita, and welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you so much for all the kind things you said about me. Oh, well, they're... It's, it's easy, you know. It, it's easy when you to cook when you're working with good ingredients. It's what my dad always said. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that you could find the time. I know how swamped you are right now, um, and we'll talk about you know why you're swamped and, and the, the the many wonderful things that you're doing. But um, how are you doing this morning? Everything okay? Yeah, everything is pretty good. Um, the sun is shining. It's a nice day. I mean, it's much hotter here than it is in South Dakota, but we're used to it. And no fireworks so far this morning. The other day when we were talking on the phone, it was the afternoon and the fireworks were already going off. Yeah, no fireworks so far today, but I'm sure that they'll pick up at some point in the afternoon. It's the fact that they're setting them off during the day lets me know that there are just way too many fireworks out there. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I say good morning to everybody, but you know, your time, of course, it's it's uh, it's noon. So, uh, you know, anytime after noon, they could we could start hearing some pops in the background, uh, folks, just as part that's of true. our ambient experience. And and that's you know just the nature of a live, uh, unedited show. And, and you know, and by the way, you're all welcome for that. Um, and uh, we're just happy <laughs> you're here. So let's get right into this. Um, I, I'd love if we could start this off by by telling us your story. 
you know, sort of how you grew up, where you came from, what did you, what did you study when you were younger? How, you know, give us a kind of a point about, you know, who you were, who young Corita was. Sure. Well, young Corita was going to be a lawyer. Um, everyone in my family is a lawyer. That's the, the joke. Uh, my mom, my dad, my brother, and my sister-in-law are all attorneys. Um, and I thought that was what I wanted to do as well. I went to college with the expectation that I was going to go from there to law school. I got a bachelor's degree in international affairs, but I realized in my first semester of my freshman year that it wasn't for me, that none of my poli-sci classes appealed to me, and all I wanted to do was take more culture classes, anthropology, um, some more English lit, stuff like that. And I realized that I was veering away from the technical side of things, which is what I think about when I think about the law and more into the personal side of things. I was more interested in people. And that pretty much was a, it changed everything. So I finished my degree, and I worked for a year, and I started applying to Ph.D. programs because I wanted to become a scholar of culture. And I got rejected from almost every single one of them, uh, except my alma mater, George Washington University, accepted me into the Ph.D. program but didn't offer me any financial aid, which is basically a rejection but a very polite one. Um, so I switched to the master's program. Um, I realized that my focus was too broad at that point for me to start a PhD. I wasn't ready to just really drill down into something so specific, which is what you have to do to get a doctorate. You have to become completely obsessed with something very specific. And so I worked on my master's degree, and I knit my way through every single uh, class that I attended. It was The classes were all two, two hours and 40 minutes, and I would have usually two of them in a row because I was still trying to work. And I would knit a hat in the round and finish one every week. By the end of the semester, the first semester, like everyone in my program had hats. Um, and I was also working one day a week at a yarn store. Um, eventually I got to the point where I was at the end of my master's study and realized I didn't want a PhD. I just liked going to school. Um, I think there are a lot of, uh, us career students out there but I just couldn't see myself continuing to take out loans and just hopping from master's program to master's program. So I just was kind of, I was kind of set adrift. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I was working full time. I'd switched to becoming the manager of the yarn store at that point. So I was just working in the yarn store, kind of not sure what I wanted to do, still trying to figure things out. I started working on a knitting book with a friend of mine that if you were knitting in the early 2000s, maybe you remember, it was called Pints and Pearls. 
and it was about uh, knitting and drinking um, <laughs> because we had a knitting group that met in a bar and every Tuesday night, and it was just this dive bar in Adams Morgan, and they were so used to us. It was a Tuesday, so they weren't busy. We'd come in. We'd take over, like, the biggest table. They even had a, um, a, a special light bulb that they would put in for us so we could see our knitting better. Um, and it was, just, it was fantastic, and I loved it. And I pitched it to a publisher the first year I went to TNNA, and um, they took me out to dinner, and they liked my idea, and I felt like in order to prove how committed I was to my idea, I needed to drink a whole bottle of wine at dinner. Um, and so that night actually did not end well for me, oh, but no. I did get the book deal. Oh, I was way too old to be, there's no age where drinking a whole bottle of wine just works out. Well, it's, and it's for the me. thing is when you're, when you're younger, you think it's okay. It just isn't. When you get older, you yeah. realize it never was okay. Yeah. 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 It never yeah. was. It just, um, especially at a show and you really have to be sharp. Oh you know? man. Yeah. And I was. It was my first TNNA. So at that point, I had started Neighborhood Fiber Company. Um, I kind of skipped ahead. I I started Neighborhood Fiber Company because I wanted a yarn business. It wasn't the sort of normal story most of that most of the hand dyers have, where they start dyeing yarn and fall in love with dyeing, and then have to start selling it because basically they're producing too much to keep. Um, I loved colors and knew I wanted, had decided that I wanted a business in the yarn industry, in the knitting world, and knew that I couldn't afford to open a yarn store and realized that I could afford to start a hand-dyed yarn business and figured that I would just teach myself how to do it and figure the rest of it out. I was, it was very, um, uh, well, let's just say that I'm, I'm not risk averse, or I was like a, a lot That's, more. Uh, a lot more, yeah. That yeah. just comes with age. Yeah. 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 Not like, that you're well, old. You're, responsibility. We, we determine you're younger than I am, so yes. But, uh, yes. Yeah. But, but you, know, uh, I was, you know, I was in my 20s. It was a different time. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, every piece that we've ever done here has always been one of my partners saying, well, let's do this. How hard could it be? Right. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. usually a year later you're thinking, oh my gosh, that was hard. Um, but, uh, right. Right. And I, but still, I think without that you know, enthusiasm, I still do it. Though, right. Nothing happens. Right. Exactly. How are we like, this is how innovation happens and moving forward. And, you know, I realized I have realized over the years that I do love dyeing yarn and I love being in this yarn business. Um, but I also love owning a business. I love being an entrepreneur. That's, that's part of it that I didn't realize at the time. Um, I had worked for other small businesses and had worked for large companies, like larger companies, like retail stores in the mall. Um, I'm really good at folding clothes, but, you know, I, I didn't know that part of what I like is starting businesses. 
which is why I now can have I back two up? yarn companies. Two yarn mm-hmm. companies, right. Can I, can I back up real quickly? Um, you said before that you already had had a neighborhood fiber company up and running before TNNA. I first want for our listeners that are primarily consumers to know what that is. TNNA is this just a sidebar, folks. TNNA has been in the past uh, the wholesale show component and wholesale association component of the fiber arts industry. And uh, that's sort of where yarn stores would go to meet wholesalers and suppliers and yarn companies and do their buying. And that's also where publishers tend to meet talent and uh, get book published. Not not the only place, but it certainly was a thing that happened. So, sorry, I just wanted to make that real quick segue for our, our listeners that are more to the consumer end and may not have heard of that. Oh, um, yeah, the second definitely. second thing is, how, how, did you, how did you, you know, I, I guess, how did you just take the leap to start the business, um, you know, Having never gone to a TNA before, or I mean, was there was there a, a moment in time where it was just like obvious you had to do this, or is this just you being very methodical and thinking, yeah, I got to do this? It was. I mean, it was part partly both. I was there was no, but there was no light bulb moment. No, like huh. this is like I feel this in my heart. It's time to do this. I was. Kind, I guess I was kind of still in the spitballing it phase and. You know, I said to – I knew I didn't want to work at the yarn store where I was anymore. I didn't want to stay there, and I needed a way out that wasn't just quitting and going to another retail job or, you know, trying to find a job in my field that, you know, I had a degree in but didn't ever really train to work in because it didn't interest me as much as I wanted it to. So I borrowed $1,000 from the International Bank of Mom and ordered my supplies and the supplies to get started and played around until I felt like I had a color palette. It was very methodical. I set out with the idea that I would do, you know, a certain number of colors and they needed to have a certain range and yeah it was just it was all very well planned my mom made me write a business plan before she would give me the loan Um, and I just you know destroyed the kitchen in my basement apartment until I had a product I was happy with and immediately started selling it Um, first to the yarn store where I was working and, you know, again, not risk averse. So I decided right after that, that obviously the next step was to go to the national trade show to start selling to all the yarn stores. And I had no idea what production was going to really look like. I didn't know what production dyeing was. I thought I did, but I had no idea. And, uh, at the time, they were offering these uh, tables instead of booths for small, small businesses that were just getting started. You could do a table for less money. And I signed up for a table, and I put as much stuff as I could in my Honda Fit and drove to Columbus, Ohio, from Baltimore, um, for the trade show. And, you know, I was completely completely overwhelmed by the positive response that I received to the point that I stopped taking orders at the end of the first day. 
wow. I couldn't. I <laughs> at that point I was still like, wow, how am I going to dye all this yarn? But <laughs> you know, I'll figure it out. I'll, it'll be fine. Um, but at a point I realized that it was just. I was like, I need to stop. This is too much. The truth is that I should have stopped about halfway at that, like, with about half as many orders as I actually took. It was a complete disaster, to be honest. Um, It was a big failure for me. I was unable to fulfill orders to customers, to big customers who were, you know, big names in the knitting industry and it really stunted my business but it made me a lot more resilient and I think a lot more hardworking and really helped me establish a set of principles that I you know, I'm very serious about maintaining in business. You, as you know, but probably talking to other people, you're not the first person that that's something like that has happened to, especially in the early days. Um, you know, that, uh, mm-hmm. it, and, and, you know, it's hard. It's hard to look at the business coming in and wondering, well, is it going to be there tomorrow and not take it? I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's not ego. It's just, you know, trying to maximize the moment. You know, I mean, and, you know, so I think the world can forgive you the mistake of, you know, biting off just a touch more than you can chew, don't you think? I mean, you certainly made it up in so many other ways by now, I would think. Oh, for sure. I mean, at this point, I feel like I always like to tell people that story because I feel like it made it take longer for me to get where I am. Um, But I still got here and where I am is pretty sweet as far as I'm concerned in terms of having a hand-dyed yarn business. I, um, the business is successful. It supports me and my family, and I never dreamed that it could be this way when I was starting the business. I didn't have a real idea for where I would be 10 years later or, you know, almost 15 years later. Well, I, I still remember the first time awesome. we met, I, I, and I saw, you, you know, your display and the brick, and I just went, yeah, that's that's just gorgeous, just the whole approach. I still remember that. Thank you. I mean, I've really, I've really worked hard on kind of establishing a brand, and which was really difficult sort of to come back from um, from people's negative impression of me, but the product was always good. So once I got to the point where I was, where I learned how to say no a lot more often, um, it, things got a little easier. Yep, no, I completely understand. And, it, you know, the, the thing about it, I, I think part of this is, um, you know, it's not really yours until you've, you've bled a little bit for it. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's just mm-hmm. one of those things mm-hmm. where you put, in, you put in the time and there's no heartache, you know, and it's all easy. You kind of take it for granted. So, so it's probably a good thing, you know, that these things happen. I know 
we've certainly made our fair share of mistakes over the years, and we try to come back and learn from them. Um, I always say that we're, I think we've got to be almost out of making mistakes at this point. We've made them all, but no, I keep finding new <laughs> ones to make. So. <laughs> so, I think we all do. I think that's part of yeah, business. Yeah, that is. So can we, this, when you were talking about this, this was in the late 90s when this was happening? The late 2000s. Late 2000s. Or like mid-2000s. Right, so, it's late. Sure. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about your the evolution of your business over the next couple of years. What did that look like? Were there specific things that gave you you know real boosts in the industry? Well, there were. Um, you know, I was able to sort of turn it around and have a few wholesale customers that I had good relationships with, but I was still mostly doing wholesale business um, instead of business that was direct to consumers. Um, I didn't have a ton of online sales and going to shows, I was kind of just starting to break into that world of going to shows. And I looked up and I, I went through a bad breakup. And when my ex and I broke up, I realized that I couldn't afford to live in DC and that, um, Basically, she had been propping me up the whole time, and I ended up moving to Columbus, Ohio, because that was where I had a really close friend um, with whom I wrote Pines and Pearls. She lived in Columbus. She had a yarn store. She said, come out here. Everything's cheaper. You can dye yarn in the basement of my yarn shop, and I found you a roommate. So I... That was the moment where I really, I guess, made the decision that Neighborhood Fiber Company was what I was going to do. Um, and that was in 2009. I packed everything up into a Penske truck, and me and my two tiny dogs drove across, you know, across, uh, you know, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and into. Ohio. And I kind of started over there. Um, I really, the time I spent in Columbus really uh, was great and terrible for me. Um, What was great is that it really narrowed my focus with the business and made me look at numbers and financials and also the value of my time in a way that I hadn't been looking at it previously. But it was also the time when I was so broke. Oh, I was so broke when I lived in Columbus and I didn't have a car anymore. And it was just, Columbus is not a great city for people without cars. And also, it was cold. The winter was so much colder than I was used to. Um, And it's really, it's usually only about 10 degrees cooler in the um, winter in Columbus than it is in, like, the Baltimore, Washington area. But 10 degrees makes a huge difference between rain and snow. And, oh, I was just miserable walking through the snow to go to my studio, which was in a basement of a really old building. So it was kind of, I called it my yarn dungeon. 
Um, it was so it was like dark and windowless and kind of dank and yeah I was and I missed my family and it was rough being in Columbus was really rough for me but it's also where the business started to really take off Um, it's when things started to really turn around for me at the point at about, about a year after I got there, things had started to really turn around. Um, I was still broke, but I was like functional broke instead of my phone was always turned off broke. Um, (laughs) and you know, I could see, light at the end of the tunnel and I was pretty sure that it was not going to be a train. So I, things were actually starting to pick up for me in Columbus and that's when I moved. Um, My grandmother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and I moved back. I moved to Baltimore to take care of her and kind of put the business on hold a little bit but I would still die yarn in her basement for specific wholesale customers um, just to sort of keep from, like keep the business from just dying. Sure. It's okay if it slowed down. But, yeah, I I really focused on her while I was there. And she was... I mean, so for people who don't know, pancreatic cancer for an 83-year-old woman is definitely a terminal diagnosis. Um, And she had been such an active person that she didn't, she really didn't want to leave her house. And my mom and my aunt were going back and forth about which one of them um, she would live with. And the truth is she didn't want to live with either of them. So I just said, why don't I, why don't I just come? I'll move in. I can dye yarn in the basement and I'll just take care of you and it'll be fine. And I kind of jumped into that with the same abandon that I jumped. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I just sort of jumped into it, not knowing really everything it would entail um, or what it would be like. I had never thought of myself as being like a nurse or anything like that, but I figured it would work itself out and I knew I loved my grandma. So I just thought it'll be fine. And it mostly was, I mean, it was, well, I'm sure it was hard, but you know, it's, I mean, God bless you. I mean, it's uh, nice that you decided to do that because it sounds to me like you were in a position where, you know, you, you could have moved a little further on with your career it sounds like things were picking up for you again you were you were functionally broke uh, which was good right you know? and, yes. I, and I and I, I get that which is you've got just enough cash to pay for everything every month as long as you check make sure you check behind the pillows for change right I mean and it right. it was a great feeling um, yeah. at the time because before I had been non-functionally broke um, so I was kind of clawing my way out of debt also um, and it was, uh, but because it was a terminal diagnosis, I also knew it, what, it wouldn't be forever, that it had a time limit on it. 
And taking care of someone else is really hard. Um, taking care of someone who's who's dying is really hard. But I loved it. I loved the time that we spent together. I loved being able to be the person who was there for her. And I felt like I got to know her in a way that I never would have otherwise. So it was a gift. Yeah, it goes back to you being more interested in the people than the policy. Yeah, I guess so. That's it. I really also I'm a I'm a person who likes to take care of people and directing that instinct towards, you know, my grandmother was a much more healthy outlet than directing it towards the people I was dating. So it was also because I was trying to get out of that habit too. (laughs) (laughs) So at at some point you, 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 uh, you started your business up there again in Baltimore. Yes. So after my grandmother passed away, I just okay, was I hanging sure around her house. Before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had been keeping a little bit of stuff going while I was there, but um, you know, my main focus was her. Uh, after she died, I was just in her house, kind of hanging around, dyeing yarn, but mostly just hanging around. And um, my mom let me know that she and her sister were going to sell the house out from under me. <laughs> Um, because it was, they were liquidating the estate. They were like doing the checklist because, you know, my mom's a lawyer and her sister was an auditor. So they were on it. Um, And it wasn't like they told me you need to get out by a certain date, but it made me really start to think about, well, what am I really doing? Where do I want to go? where do I want to live and have this business? Cause I felt like I could go wherever I wanted to go. Um, but I knew I couldn't stay right there and I didn't want to cause it never, it felt like my grandma's house, not mine. And also all my neighbors were like in their seventies and I just needed to get out of there. I realized I didn't know anyone in, I actually didn't know anyone in Baltimore who wasn't over 70 or related to me. So I just, because my mom grew up in Baltimore and a lot of, um, most of my family is still around here. So I started looking for places that I could live and work. And I saw an ad on Craigslist for a new artist's apartment building that was going to have rents that were affordable and would be where the apartments would be designed for artists. So, you know, you you look at the pictures and the floor plans and I saw this, you know, beautiful apartment, hardwood floors, high ceilings, all this light and, uh, you know, a slop sink in the dining room. And I was like, this is the dream, man. I can, I can live in this place. And I was so excited about it, but also it just seemed way too good to be true. Um, when I looked up the location on Google Maps, it showed this vacant lot surrounded by um, like a boarded up row homes. And I just assumed I'm going to go down there and it's going to be a scam. 
I'm going to find out that it's a scam because it just seemed too amazing. And I got there and it was real. And, and it was amazing. I moved into an artist apartment building that was affordable and was full of people who were like me, who were either, you know, trying, some of them were at different points in their careers. It was all kinds of art. So there were visual artists, there were musicians, there were performance artists. Um, Some people were doing their art full-time. Some people had office jobs and just an artistic bend or an interest in growing their artistic practice. Some people were really, you know, hustling and running businesses out of their apartments. Um, It was fantastic. It really changed things and made helped make Baltimore into a place that I that's my home too. Instead of just being the family home, um, it made me fall in love with Baltimore. Yeah, it really did. Very and I nice. stayed there and so- worked out of my apartment. Yeah, I stayed there and worked out of my apartment and until I could fit no more yarn in my apartment and <laughs> uh, realized that the only place that I could be without seeing yarn in my line of sight was the bathroom. And I rented a separate space for a separate workspace in 2012. Did you hold on to the apartment? It sounds like a great apartment. Oh yeah, I stayed there. I and it was great because I love living alone. So I was living alone. The rent was affordable. I was like, I'm gonna die in this apartment. I'm never leaving. And I would tell my friends, if you don't hear from me in a few days, make sure you check because I'm never leaving this apartment. <laughs> and you know, and you, that's the worry that I think all people have a little bit of when they live alone. Um, But it was great, and I stayed there until um, I moved out and bought a house that is so close to the apartment building that I can stand on my deck and actually see the apartment building. Does that make you a little wistful? Sometimes. I mean, I think that as – well, now – so I also got married. I – uh, took in my little brother um, from my dad's third marriage. So um, I suddenly found myself the parent of an 11-year-old. And, you know, then I had my son. I have a two-year-old son. And so there are times when I stand on my deck and I look back at that apartment building and think, I just sometimes I just wish I could be back in that life of living alone where I was only responsible for me and two tiny dogs. (laughs) Well, as somebody who has gone through the kids with the, uh, that are younger and and now I only have kids that are young adults, it, it, you do get the space back. It comes with a little heartache as they no longer need you as much, but you do get the time back. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and my son finds his own ways of reminding me because, with little kids, everything changes so fast. 
yeah. you know, a two-year-old is one way, and you think you're used, you finally are used to it, and and then they switch it up on you. So your life is very complicated. You're, you've got a successful business. Um, I, I do want to move into something here that, that happened not so long ago. And, and the reason I want to move it because you were a, a very big voice in this. And in uh, 2019, our industry started having a very serious talk about racism and inequality in our industry. Um, it was met by a lot of different reactions from people. Um, and... Uh, you were very much a leader in that online conversation. Um, do you mind talking about that? Not at all. Um, it's funny because I don't feel like I was leading that conversation at all. I just I feel like I looked up and it was happening, and people were looking to me because I'd been in the industry for for so long, and because I had already made it clear that politics and equality were a part of my brand and a part of my life. So, you know, I felt like there were a lot of people who were, who were making that noise, who were ready to stir it up. And it, for someone like me, it just made it possible to start saying all these things that I had been thinking for years and having conversations with people that, you know, I never thought I would have. It was really, it was really amazing and also awkward and uncomfortable at points and and difficult. And, you know, I felt like there were lines drawn in the sand that, you know, people... Some people crossed the line and, you know, it changed. You know, I'm not a big fan of the whole idea of, I don't like the phrase cancel culture. Um, I think that sometimes people do terrible stuff and everyone finds out about it. And, you know, that might mean that maybe nobody wants to deal with them anymore. And I think that's okay. I think that, as consumers, we get to all make decisions like that. And as business owners, we have to live with the consequences of our actions. So I was hearing from, you know, a lot of the knitters in the community who were, a lot of the black women in the community who had been my customers for a long time, um, and we're also older. We were talking about how we never thought that we'd be having these conversations, that this would be happening. And also talking to lots of white people who were truly, um, a lot of whom were really shocked that this had been going on, like, and and shocked that they were a part of the problem, <laughs> Um by creating an environment that wasn't that they were part of the problem of the the inequality in the way that BIPOC knitters um, and crocheters and dyers and designers were not being treated the same way. So as their white counterparts 
and it was it was like no one had noticed um, for a lot of people they were really i was what that's what surprised me the most the number of people who were surprised uh, surprised and you know pretty ashamed also you know about the whole thing i mean just to be completely painfully honest to the uh the listeners uh, you and I had a similar conversation um yeah. it was good that we had the conversation you know um mm-hmm. that uh you know you essentially Ben what are you doing and where do you stand and you know what's going on and you were very open about it you were very easy to talk to about it um but uh as you recall it was I, a great conversation I I I thought well you know I told I think I told you I don't have all the answers but I sure am working hard on it and here's the things I think I can do and here's the things that I want to do and um I, I think I got pretty emotional during the conversation, and you were very sweet. And it's not your job to pep me up when I'm doing these things, but you were very sweet to me. Well, you did get kind of emotional, but it was also um, really clear to me that you were being sincere. And um, the things that you were telling me that you were doing, like, you know, having your staff read um, – articles and think pieces on racism and microaggressions and just stuff that actually changes a culture is that kind of stuff. I mean, it starts with educating people who are open to the idea of like, you can't educate people who aren't open to the idea that racism is a problem. If they're not open to that idea, then that's it. You're done. Um, There's not much you can do but you were making it a part of the culture of your business, which I really admired that you were willing to walk the walk and take a stand and really, I felt like I really, I really want to give you credit for, for doing that, for, um, for stepping up and being willing to take a risk. Because as a black knitter and black dyer, you know, I, it's always, there's always a risk. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that I feel like it's a risk anymore. I think I, I, I I do think I went through a phase of feeling bad about myself, which wasn't very useful, um, feeling guilty, um, feeling, what can I do? Feeling impatient that I couldn't do more. I mean, all, all these weird things that you go through as you're trying to find some balance and, and do the right thing and realizing, you know, you can't rush. You, you know, you've got to be thoughtful. Are you being too thoughtful? You know, are you, mm-hmm. you, know, are you being smart? Are you, are being, is, or is smart overly cautious? And you, you get to that point, right? And um, you start second-guessing yourself. And, you know, for me, recent events um, have made me to the point where I, I, I don't second-guess myself anymore. I'm, I'm I'm angry and I'm going to stay angry for a while. It, and I don't really think it's a risk. I think that's the right place to be because it helps the decisions very easily. Yeah, I think that, I agree. That, I think you're right. Me. And I think that now, I mean, with the events that have happened recently, more recently, and again, I keep I keep being surprised by um I keep being surprised by people because I'd grown so used to expecting things not to change that when I started seeing that things actually were changing, I was really 
surprised, um, pleasantly surprised, but also just kind of just kind of blown away because I didn't expect anything after you know, after all of the protesting in Ferguson, nothing really happened. There weren't any consequences uh, for the police, and it sort of continued to escalate, and all of these things had been going on for years, and, you know, now we have video of them, and at the point where I realized that having video evidence still wasn't enough to convict a police officer for murdering a black person, you know, in watching the different cases like Philando Castile or Fernando Castile and no, Philando. Yeah. Um, You know, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, which really hit home. And even so when when we got to the point most recently with George Floyd, I was expecting protests, but I wasn't expecting anything to happen. Um, and I I have friends who are activists, and we talk about activists like the fatigue of activism, um, and how it can feel like you're just throwing yourself against a brick wall over and over and over again, hoping that you make, you know a little dent in the mortar. Um, So I just, I didn't have any expectations and it's been, it's been much more than I expected in terms of actual like change and momentum and just seeing people, seeing white people acknowledge something that black people have always known and also seeing black people who I never expected to see talking about race and racism that they face, seeing them talk about race. Like I watched a a clip of Bryant Gumbel talking about the black tax and it was surreal because No one would ever have thought of him as uh, an activist or, you know, someone who would bring up race or racism. So I think, you know, we're living in a whole different world. It's people are mad and I'm glad I'm happy everyone's mad because I've been angry for a long time. Nice to not be by myself. No, it, well, it, no, and let's. I'm. I'm not going to say what I was going to say. Uh, you know how I feel about things. And the last thing the world needs is a white cis heterosexual man reinterpreting race relations in America. So I will keep my mouth shut. Stop <laughs> with that. Um, so uh, let's move on to just the the you know the circumstances around what happened was. You know, it was pretty. It was pretty harsh, you know. First of all, we're living in, a, in a, an incredibly conser- under a conser- incredibly conservative and, and closed-minded uh, president um, that right. is, makes makes no apologies about not being a friend of anybody that, that doesn't look just like me. Um, and 
we're going through the COVID-19 pandemic, which, you know, again, I think if you picked up on any even mainstream media, you're seeing that the, the death toll in the black community is so much higher mm-hmm. than anything. Yes. You know, and, and this, this is calling attention to the fact that, you know, black Americans don't have the same access to health care and the, the, the wellness. Uh, yeah, the, the health disparities, food desert. And, and so as they're being disproved, as black people are being disproportionately dying over this thing. Now comes this scene where, you know, we actually have to show America a video, um, you know, and it required a perfect storm video of a true lynching. And for anybody to, to deal with this, I, I mean, I guess the, the, the one positive of that is that there were white people who went, oh, my God, that's really taking place. I mean, I, I would think that's, you know, okay, mm-hmm. great. Better, better late to the party than never, kind of thing. But it—it um, was—I mean, it was very hard. And and the thing that worries me the most, and I think it worries people the most, is, you know, how fast can we learn? Because right. you know, we, you know, what we're going through right now is is hard, but it's not as hard as it could be. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody says, well, it can't get worse. No, no, it, it really could get worse. I mean, I could. Uh, absolutely could. Started, <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure you could, too. I mean, so, you know, let me ask you the question. Are we learning fast enough? You know, I it depends on what day you ask me. Some days I feel <laughs> very optimistic about um, about the future. And, it, you know, right now I feel like, the best way to sort of continue to cultivate that optimism is with small things, um, things where you can see appreciable change in a sort of on a micro level, if not on a macro level, because on a macro level, you know, we have a federal government that's barely functioning. So, um, we have to be learning fast enough because if we don't, because the alternative is, is unacceptable. It's, it's an unmaking. Um, I've been feeling like 2020 is, uh, is like childbirth. Um, There's a point in childbirth when you, when you enter transition during labor and, it's um, incredibly painful, but also, and this for for the record, I had a completely hippie home birth um, with no painkillers. So I had so for me, it's all very it was all very cerebral, um, but also super like visceral. Um, but you know, childbirth is painful and messy and complicated sometimes. Sometimes things go not the way you plan because you're birthing something new. And I really, really want to believe that that's what's happening right now, that we are going through this horrible, painful transition because we're birthing something new, something better. I hope you're right. 
I pray you're right. And that's literally as optimistic as I as I get. That is that's my that's my rosiest outlook is that we are birthing and it's going to continue to be painful because we are not done with labor. Um that we're birthing something better for the next generation of people. Um for the for the kids who are who are my son's age and the kids who aren't even born yet. But because if we don't get it right, there's nothing for them. Yeah. And well, so that brings me to my, I'm just going to go ahead and just take this interview away from you and keep going. Um, uh, I was going to, I was going to move you into the, the pleasant thing of the GoFundMe, but if you want to go, go. Yes, I'm ready. Um, All right. So that moves so I'll, I'll me transition into, you into that. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so yeah. one of one of the positive, we were on the same page. Oh, I tell you, we're getting in, we're getting into so mind sync here. So good. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the positive. Let's let's talk about one of the positives you refer to, which is, you know, being proactive and doing something. Well, I, I know you well enough to that you are proactive and you do things. Um, you started a GoFundMe campaign, um, and would you tell our listeners about your GoFundMe campaign? Right. So I uh, launched a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for a donor-advised fund at a foundation, a community foundation, which is all a bunch of philanthropy talk for um, I was trying to raise money so that I could open an account at the bank, the charity bank, basically, that would allow me to make donations to charities, to different nonprofits and organizations in a way that was planned. I wanted to have more flexibility, like more ability to pivot. Um, Up until this point, I had been having fundraisers with the company um, and yarn by, you know, usually choosing a color um, and calling it, it was my color for a cause. And, you know, I would have a particular color that would be a limited edition and I would donate the proceeds from the sale of all the yarn in that color to whatever cause um, I was raising money for at the time. So, you know, one summer we just did a summer of giving and we picked a different group every month for three months. Uh, When the shooting happened in Parkland, we developed a color for that and raised like $18,000 $18,000 and the bulk of it went to uh, it went it went to send it went towards sending kids to the March on Washington um, for gun safety and you know it was or for gun control reform um, so the GoFundMe, um, in order to get to open a fund, the minimum balance that you deposit is $10,000. And I wanted to raise that money so that I could start start my fund. And Well, you exceeded it by just of, a bit. Well, so I started off with ten grand as my goal <laughs> because that was the minimum you needed. And we raised that in like six hours. And... The, oh, so 
now our ambient noise is a, a siren going by. Sorry, everybody. So um, just we're, it's a live show. Yeah. So six hours later, we had ten grand, and I was like, oh, crap, what do I do? I'll, I'll raise the goal. Um, and I raised it to 25, and we had that within 24 hours. And, you know, I just kept bumping the goal up a little bit at a time until I finally said, once we, once we crossed the threshold of 50 grand, I said, let's just go for 100 grand. Let's do it. So we are over 80 grand um, in funds raised for this donor-advised fund, which is essentially, for me, it's a, it's a prelude to what I've always wanted, which is a, a charitable organization that is sort of an offshoot of Neighborhood Fiber Company, um, an, an actual nonprofit foundation. But I don't have the infrastructure to support that right now. Uh, so this is my baby step, uh, is starting this fund. And because of the generosity of so many different people and the trust that they have in me to make good decisions about where the money goes, now I get to make plans for much larger donations and much more um, much more impactful donations. We're now I have like a couple people who are advising me. We're, we're going to have an advisory committee, um, and we're going to actually release um, a call for proposals, a request for proposals, and grant application. Uh, because we're going to be able to give away multiple, like, substantial grants. I want to give away $50,000 this year. And I want it to be to organizations in, that can make a real impact with the amount of money that I give them, which means micro-level, small community organizations, people who are out there doing the work. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and for Fiber Hooligan listeners, don't worry. Uh, we're going to post a whole bunch of links, including the GoFundMe yeah. link on the show notes for tomorrow, uh, and encourage you to, uh, to sign up and uh, help push this over that $100,000 uh, level. So, um, but but something else is, there's two other things that are good that came out of this, as I understand. Well, the first is the number of people who contributed. Yes, it was... Well, so um, it wasn't – the money didn't come as, you know, a dozen or even 50, you know, large donations. Some of the donations are $5 or $10 or $25. And there are I – think, I think we're almost at 2,000 donors, and that is what – is so inspiring to me because it means that this has gone far beyond the reach of, you know, me sending out an email to my list or posting it on my Instagram that it means that this is something that has been shared with lots of people and that 
that lots of people can read it, read about it and hear about it and it aligns with their values enough that they want to contribute. And there was the other very cool thing that happened is, and this is something the entire industry owes you a thanks for because it's definitely highlighting our industry as, as well as what you've done. The GoFundMe people have chosen you and what you've done as the GoFundMe uh, person of the month. Is that right? It's the hero of the month. <laughs> the hero of the um, month. Sorry. Sorry, Kim. Yes. Well, I mean, if I'm going to have the title of hero, um, I'm going to really, I'm going to milk it for all oh, it's worth. Use it. Um, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Like, uh, have I told you that I'm a hero? Um, yeah. It's going to be how I introduce myself now. Uh, <laughs> I'm having Nathaniel put that on really, your next badge. Please. Yes. Absolutely. I think that's, that that would be hilarious. Yep. Um, I feel like Nathaniel would really like to do it too. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that means is that GoFundMe, which is huge, like a huge organization and has like thousands of different fundraisers going on at any given time, they noticed the, the work that I was doing. They noticed how quickly the fundraising happened and they liked the story um, because they were able to pick up on the fact that this is not a brand new idea that I just had. It's a natural progression of the work that I've been doing for, you know, the last 15 years. This is and this is not the I – I wanted to say it was the culmination, but it's not. It's really, to me, a step – another step in the direction of having an actual nonprofit. So, they, yeah, they picked me as the hero of the month, um, which means I did a podcast, video podcast interview with them that is going to go live tomorrow. And – I will get you the links to that as well. And they're doing a big, like, article write-up profile of me. It's all very – it feels really weird, but it's also really exciting. Because it means that even more people are going to find out about it. Well, more people will find out about you. You'll spread the message. I mean, this is is a good thing. This is a good thing. I'm excited. I – I'm excited that this has grown into something that's where I feel like I have so much money to give away. I have to be very thoughtful about where I give it. Um, You know, because again, I jumped into the idea of having, of starting the fund really just because there were two things that happened that made me, that helped me make the decision. Uh, One was that a, nice lady, a nice little old lady who's a customer of mine uh, and is actually a Stitches attendee, but she lives in Baltimore. So even though she lives really close to the studio, I only ever see her at Stitches. Um, (laughs) But she is the sweetest little old lady, and she mailed me a check made out to Neighborhood Fiber Company for $25 with instructions to give it to whoever I thought was the best choice at that moment. This was 
right after COVID was really um, right after COVID hit and it was really clearly impact impacting people's ability to just feed their families Um, in Baltimore where the percentage of students who are eligible for free or reduced price lunch is so high that they just give it to everyone. You, the closure of schools meant for a lot of kids that they were losing at least two meals a day. Um, and for families that are already stretched thin and maybe may have had hours cut or may have been laid off, that made a huge impact in their ability to just eat. So I was donating to people who were feeding the citizens of, of Baltimore. And she just was like, you just take this check and, and give it to the best one. And it, and she just trusted me to do it. It was it was kind of amazing um, and so heartwarming for me. So that was one push. And the other one was that I got a request from uh, a company that I do business with that is a um, someone who buys yarn wholesale from Neighborhood Fiber Company. Um, and this company offered to give me $1,000 as a donation. And this is not the first time that someone has offered me money as a donation, but I always say no because I am, because NFC is not a charity. Neighborhood Fiber Company is a for-profit enterprise and I just don't feel right taking money from people as donations. if they want to buy something, I am glad to sell them something. But I don't need to just take people's money. So, um, But this time, I really thought about it, and I thought about what I could do with that money and the fact that this is not just a one-off thing. This is a theme of people wanting me to tell them where to put their money to do good. And it is, in that way, it is the culmination of a lot of years of doing fundraisers and being really transparent about my politics and the way that I, the way that I value giving as a part of, you know, if, if, as a part of the principles of how I do business. Um, I have built up enough trust with people that they want to, they want me to tell them where to give their money. And so that day, because this company um, needed an answer because they wanted to put it on their newsletter, um, I decided that day that I was going to open the fund and put up a GoFundMe. Uh, I think I had it up the next morning. Um, I wrote up the description and grabbed one of the images that I felt really conveyed the um, the, the feeling of, of the fund and threw it all up really quickly and 
gave them a link so they could have a place to donate. And that was how it started. It really, I made the decision and just pulled the trigger. I and guess people I still really are am coming to you. Not risk averse. Well, people, well, no, people really are coming to you and saying, "Okay, look, what's the best thing I could do? I want, I want to help." You know, and yes. that's great. And um, you know, and now you're going to have real solutions for them. It's fantastic. Now the answer is always, "Give me your money." I mean, not <laughs> uh, that's. So I, my well, mom and I have a joke simple, that I'm very good at asking simple. for people for money. Yeah, but it's now it's it is. It's the answer is donate put your money in this fund and I will make sure that it goes where it's needed. And you know, here are my values and you know my values and you trust me. And and you know that I'm gonna follow through. I'm so excited. I'm like I well I'm you, really you know, your your values so are you know, I mean you're very transparent about your values. I just saw the other day I was kind of skimming around Facebook and I saw a post that you had uh, put up um, from the Transgender Law Center, you know, about I think it was defending mm-hmm. black trans lives um, and uplifting them and supporting their artistry. And, and I just thought, wow, that's it's beautiful. And so I quickly took a screenshot or copied the link and, you know, it's so uh, you know, I think your hands. I think putting that money in your hands is going to be a good thing. I think everybody who well, needs it is going to get it. Thank you. I mean, there's that's the thing about charity. There's never enough. Like, there's never enough money for charity. And uh, in some ways, I I believe that. And I read this. This was in a novel that I read, um, where the the rich women are going into the poor area of town and doing charity work. Um, And the mother says to her daughter that, you know, we do this, we do this and it's charity, but charity is no substitute for justice. And with the, and so it was kind of like she was explaining to her daughter that we we're doing this charity for now because we are still hoping for justice. We're still like, this is how we can help now. And that's how I view it. Um, That that's how I fashion my giving. It's, you know, I can't just wave a magic wand and create economic justice and housing justice and education justice. I can't, educational justice. I can't do those things on my own, but I can do charity that helps alleviate the harm that is done by injustice. Well, at least until we send you to the Senate, um, you know. (laughs) Uh, I think that I am not the one. Uh, It's funny. We always uh, thought my brother would be the politician in my family. Um, even to the point that one of my one of our older cousins always called him the judge uh, or Senator William, but you know he's wor- done too much work as a as a public defender to um, be a palatable choice for for most people. Um, and I think that I say exactly what I'm thinking and exactly what I mean a little too much to be a politician. (laughs) 
maybe that's why you should be. Well, well, we won't. I won't push. I won't pressure you into that. I've, I've had those thoughts myself. But, <laughs> so we, we'll leave leave politics alone for right now. So, well, uh, you know, I, I have sh- contemplated a city council run, but that's have you? a whole different okay. show. All right. Well, you let us know when you start campaigning. You know, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get behind it. I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be people be in your corner from the fiber arts world. I mean, yeah. Well, not all. Not all of us will be able to vote for you, obviously, but you know. Yes. Well, you know, it's yeah. really um, a matter of, to me, a matter of the fact, just efficiency and wanting to really change something on a level that I can access, which is a local level. So, as my kids get older and I have more time. I would like to be more active in local politics. I always say the same thing. My kids are getting older and I just never find the time. You never know. It's never, I mean, it's not like it's too late. No. You've still got well, plenty of time. I'm, I'm, I'm old though now, Karita. you got to remember I'm, you know, I'm very old now. So, uh, Dude, our anyway, president I, is in his 70s. Like, come yeah, on. I, I just, you know, if you could not, you know, Compare me to, to the pres for any reason. I'd really appreciate that. Well, that's that, just the kind yeah, of that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. fair. Okay, so um, your business is doing well now, right? Yes, I am on solid ground. And it feels really good. Good, that's fantastic, and and you and you're you're still having fun, and of course we're not seeing each other as much these days because nobody's going to the shows, and we hope that that will eventually end, um, and we'll be able to oh, see I each hope other. So. Although, yeah. Although, although eventually you'll probably, you know, when we roll out our virtual product we're working on right now, you'll probably end up being somewhat part of that world. We at least we. Hope oh, I hope so. Uh, you know, um, yeah, we're, we're we're real close to yeah. So well, you'll be hearing about more about Exciting. that soon. So there was a, a quote that you used. Well, thank you. There was a quote you used the other day, um, which signifies, you know, why you think that so much progress has been made, you know, in our little industry. Would you mind telling our listeners what that quote is? Now I don't remember what I said. Um, starts with knitters. Oh, oh, how knitters get shit done. Knitters get shit done, yes. That's that's the line. And you've used that line many times. And I yeah. and I know you believe it because, you know, you can rally a bunch of knitters and yeah, no, I, I agree. Knitters get I shit agree. done. They are not a sit behind like they're not a group of people who just sort of sit there and and don't do anything when something is upsetting them. Knitters right. are ready to get shit done. I, like I, I actually think I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to change the title of your episode to Karita Collins' uh, Knitters Get Shit Done as opposed to just Neighborhood Fiber Company uh, just because it's so great. Hey, I mean, uh, it's it's so true, though, because, um, you know, the, the push in the industry, the changes that have happened in the industry, the way that people are more aware of, just more aware of diversity, that, you know, there's a, that you don't take for granted that everyone in the room is going to be white anymore. So that just that shift is huge because it's a shift in perspective. Um, and, you know, from the little old ladies who mail $25 checks all the way on down to the Instagram influencers 
Knitters get shit done. I love it. I absolutely love it. All right, so uh, we're coming close to the end of the interview. So before we move on any further, is there anything we didn't talk about that we should? Did I miss anything that we should have been talking about? I don't think so. I mean, to be honest, there's, I'm not, there's nothing that I'm more excited about right now than the Momentum Fund. I'm, right. It's occupying all of my brain space, and we talked about that. It's wonderful. Yeah, no, it is wonderful. And we've got to make sure that we uh, we have you back on in, in a while, and so we can follow up on this. This has got to be a, a re- reoccurring thing. So we'll give you a, you know a month or two. And I'm excited. We'll probably have you back back on, and and we'll do a yeah. follow up on that. Okay. Um, all right. So this is uh, you know in this troubled time, you know, uh, what advice can you give the world? Oh, just get up and do something. You know, Good for you. talk to somebody else. Talk to other people and get up and do something because there's always something you can do. Even if it's just, even if it's just writing a check, there's always something you can do. Good advice. All right. Last, uh, last uh, question here. Do you have anyone that you want to thank or make a shout out to while you're on the air? Oh, you know what? I would love to shout out to, um, I call them team Weaver. Um, and that's Ann Weaver, who is a designer, a knitwear designer, and her sister, Beth, who when at the moment that COVID hit and it looked like I was going to lose all of my staff um, because the two main, like my two main full-time employees were both, you know, mothers who needed to, who suddenly had kids that were going to be at home all the time. Um, and also we're very concerned about exposure and health um, and the health of their families. So at a time when I was looking like I was going to lose all my employees, in addition to the fact that all these shows were canceling, uh, Team Weaver, Ann Weaver and Beth Weaver, came through and have been working for me since then and really helped keep this machine running at a time when I couldn't afford to slow down. So shout out Team Weaver. Well, that's fantastic. Very nice way to end. You thank somebody that, yes, well, we we, we, we get by with a little help from our friends. That's exactly. Well, this is the sort of where we end the interview at this point. I, I, I wish I could keep talking to you, but I, I know you sort of got to get on with your day. We've been talking a little about an hour and 20 minutes, and it's been absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you so much for finding the time, and thank you for being vocal and a leader and, and you know, also a joy to work with. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was fantastic, and you know, Benjamin, I love working with you, so I look forward to our next interaction. Uh, well, you know, count on it because you know it's. Uh, you know, I, I just want to. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't need to be your campaign manager when you uh, run for city council. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly, I'll, I'll help any way I can. I, I think uh, that would be a good thing. And you know, I, maybe one day when I run for city council here in Harrisburg, 
No, I'm not going to do that. I just I've already decided I'm not going to do that. But anyway, we'll we'll move on. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I I really appreciate I really appreciate you uh, sharing yourself with uh, the Fiber Hooligan listeners, and I hope you'll come back and and keep us updated about your fund and the, the other amazingly cool things that you're doing. Um, you know, I'd love to have you be a regular. Fantastic. Me too. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye bye. That was Karita Collins, an amazing artisan and person. I'm so pleased she could find the time to be on the show. She is incredibly busy these days. During the show, we talked about a lot of things, including some websites and resources, and we're going to be putting those, that information and those links in the show notes on fiberhooligan.com within the next day or so. I really want you to jump up there and, uh, and read the show notes and, and check out those links because uh, you know, so many people wonder what to do and how to get involved, and, and, and Karita Karita's going to help. She's got, she's got something, and I, I think that's pretty wonderful of her. Okay, next Monday, my guest will be Anna Zilborg. Anna, an elder in the knitting community, is an Anglican solitary who now lives in the seaside town of Rockland, Maine. According to a quote that I found online, she says she was, quote, born and reared in New York City, educated at Harvard, taught at MIT, fled from the maddening crowd's ignoble strife until she found herself in Big Stone Cap, Virginia. She got religion, returned to my childhood, and returned to her childhood love of knitting and became a hermit. Well, we're, we're going to ask her about that particular quote because it's an interesting quote. But at this point, Anna is retired. Um, before she retired, she devoted her energy to teaching the living craft as opposed to just following directions. She has been called the anarchist knitter because of her book, Knitting for Anarchists, and the mad bobbler due to her love of three-dimensional stitches. Other books include Magnificent Mittens and Socks, Splendid Apparel, Fancy Feet, and many others, some of which are out of print, and I'll make sure that on the show notes we have her complete list of books. Beyond her impressive career, Anna is also one of the most interesting people I have ever met. I've known her for at least half my life, um, and she really gets fascinating, more fascinating every year that I, that I know her. I'm so happy that she's agreed to be on the show. Uh, please tune in next week. You really don't want to miss Anna. I want to make sure that you know that I'm eager to hear from you. You can email me questions, recommendations, critiques, and feedback at fiberhooligan at gmail.com. And that includes suggestions for guests or cool things you'd like me to highlight on the show. I don't promise to respond to every email or message, but I do promise to do my best to read them all. If you have a really great question or an inspired idea, I may even read your email on the podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Karita, for being on the show today. I'd like to thank the XRX and Stitches crew for encouraging me to start this podcast up again. I'd like to thank my partners and family, David, Elaine, and Alexis, for their support. I'd like to thank my dear wife, Krista, for always believing in me. I'd like to thank Libby Butler-Gluck for all her encouragement and her help. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Well, that's our show, Farber Hooligans. As we slide on out of here today, I'd like to wish you all a glorious week. Remember, the only thing better than being creative is being kind to each other. The good news, we can do both. Thank you for spending this time with us. I hope you'll join me and my special guest, Anna Zilborg, next week on another edition of Fiber Food.